MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, and we have an amazing show for you today. A lot of good justice <laughs> going on. Uh, I'm your host, Allison Gill. With me as always, real-life friend, real-life lawyer, Andrew Torres. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Allison. How are you doing? I am doing so good today. I can't, wow. I can't express how <laughs> excited I am. Because and and we'll get into this in a moment. Actually, let's say let's say yeah. let's <laughs> let's let's ramp up the anticipation and talk Ooh. a little bit about our patrons first. Because this Ooh. show would not be possible, and my excitement would not be possible without our patrons. Everybody who voted for Joe Biden made today possible. So uh, thank you for that, and thank you to everyone who supports this show. Uh, we really appreciate you. And uh, uh, Andrew, who do we have as as new patrons this week? Yeah, big thanks. This is uh, if you head on over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash aisle 45 pod, A-I-S-L-E four five P-O-D. Uh, you give us a buck an episode and you get the ad free version of the show and you get to tell us you love us and we get to respond to your patron messages, which we do and all that good stuff. We do occasional hangouts. You give us two bucks. And we give you double the episodes. We give you the special bonus Friday morning kind of wrap up where um, if you heard last Friday's episode, I was at my swearing angriest. Uh, the, <laughs> yes, the, you the SCOTUS, uh, you know, quote investigation. So the words are sticking in my throat. The bile is still there. The SCOTUS investigation of itself. Uh, came out and uh, I had a couple of choice words about it. We'll have, have a couple more on this one, but uh, yeah, you get to I hear have, the unexpurgated version. <laughs> we had some we had some choice words for Curly Sue, oh or yeah, whatever that Marshall is. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but back to our patron. That was a lead in. That was a that was a. If you're a two dollar patron, that's what you get. And uh, here are our newest patrons at any level. You always get the shout out from us because. We love you. We help you make the show go. So a uh, big thanks to Karen Cook, Simone By, Fran Reichenbach, Deborah Gilreath, Sherry Theron, Joseph Katz, Bob Loblaw. How's the uh, blog going there? Uh, Cat Pat <laughs> Mac, Shannon Gustafson, and Sandra Ackerman. Take it away for the rest. 
Yes, and the rest. Tom Weiss Lehman, Andrew Myrick, Richard JJ, Kat All, Aaron, Ana Concepcion Castro, Patrick DePaul, SJ, Dean Gaudet or Dean Gaudet, and Christopher Guest is the six fingered I... <laughs> man, a patron of Cleanup on Aisle 45. I, I am a huge Christopher Guest fan, so I sure hope oh, that that's. Uh... <laughs> me too. Going all the way back to the Billy Crystal, tell me about it. I Ooh. hate when that happens. Remember? <laughs> yeah. I hate when Good you take stuff. one of those. You ever get one of those five inch replicas of the Empire State Building and hammer it up your nose? <laughs> I hate when that happens. I hate when that happens. Tell oh, me gosh. about it. <laughs> if it is not that Christopher Guest, I am sure oh, it is a, a Christopher Guest of equal or greater value. Thank you for being <laughs> right. a patron. Now they'll be they'll be doing the uh, the bit from Office Space. <laughs> we make that other guy change his name. He's the one who sucks. <laughs> yeah, he's the one who sucks. <laughs> oh, so. All right. Okay, so here's why I'm so happy today. A jury on Monday. This is from NBC News convicted four members of the extremist group, the Oath Keepers, of seditious conspiracy. That mm-hmm. is right. We got more seditious conspiracy convictions on the books. The jury started deliberations Thursday morning after the trial that spanned five weeks. Prosecutors said the four defendants, Robert Menuda, Joseph Hackett, David Morshall, and Edward Vallejo, used a, quote, perverted version of American history to justify their actions on January 6th. Quote, Attacking the Capitol was a means to an end. This is Assistant U.S. Attorney Luis Manzo telling jurors uh, this during, you know, during his closing arguments Wednesday. He said the group took advantage of the riot and seized the opportunity to fulfill their goal of preventing Congress from counting electoral votes and confirming Joe Biden as the winner of the election. January 6th was just a battle. The full conspiracy was to stop the transfer of power. Well put, Mr. Yeah. Manzo. Uh, uh, Prosecutor. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You can do it. Uh, prosecutor said Vallejo was staged uh, at Virgin at a Virginia hotel with stockpiles of rifles. That's that quick reaction force. While Hackett, Marshall, and Minuta led groups to breach the Capitol building. We can talk a little bit more about the trial, but what an excellent, excellent outcome! They were also found guilty of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy to destroy government property. I think they were acquitted of some of the lesser charges here and there. Um, And, uh, you know, we can go over those details as soon as I get them. But this news is just coming across our desks just within the last 10 minutes. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, this really the significance of this cannot be overstated. So this offense is 18 U.S.C. Section 2384. You and I have covered it at some length. That uh, this is really rarely charged. And so the the precise wording of the offense, I think, is really, really significant when you when you talk about the effect that this has on subsequent prosecutions, including of, you know, certain former president of the United States, maybe possibly. So 18 U.S.C. 2384. And by the way, as I make the reference to a certain president of the United States, the the one six committee did not criminally refer out Donald Trump for seditious conspiracy for reasons we talked about when we broke that down on the show. However, I think when you look at the underlying elements here, this has to give you, a, uh, if you're a prosecutor, a pretty high level of confidence or at least a higher level of confidence that, yeah, you you can go out and win these 
rarely charged criminal offenses because you know what else is rare people trying to overthrow the government so uh <laughs> you know the the, the crime well, seems so to rare. fit the time yeah <laughs> and it's so rare tell me tell me this is how they're going to figure out these sentencing guidelines because there aren't really sentencing guidelines for this they have to go with other crimes to sort of figure out how long to put these guys away um at least that was true for I think that was true for obstructing official procedure. Or was it seditious conspiracy? Well, you and I talked about the sentence and guidelines for this. It's 20 year max, but they th I think it's so rare that they actually have to go with a different crime and sort of compare it and then add aggravating factors like a domestic terrorism charge would would bump up those sentences. Is that right? Or do I, am I missing something? No, that is exactly right. So I, I, I want to put a pin in that. I, I want to get to it first. I want to read you the definition of the offense here so we can talk about what a jury found beyond a reasonable doubt with respect to these Oath Keepers. So 2384 applies if two or more persons conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States, okay, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force, to seize, take, or possess any property in the United States, contrary to any authority thereof, and again, carries a 20-year max. Now, obviously, uh, at trial, they focused in on the by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, uh, to wit, the processing at the joint session of Congress of the electoral votes on January 6th. So, you know, a but lot the, of folks had said the closing yeah. arguments, though, they did say uh, that they were trying to the, the, the goal was to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, which is to overthrow or put down the government of the United States. But I, I think you're right. I think the 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 jury instructions considerations, I think they were focused on on um, stopping, the, you know, the, a law from being executed, a law of the United States from being executed. But also they had a separate charge of a of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, which is that also. Yep, that is that is exactly correct. And so at, as we've as we've talked about before, the way in which the sentencing guidelines work is you fall under there. It, it's just a matrix and the sentencing table puts you in a column uh, based on your prior criminal history, I believe. All of these defendants uh, are in the first column. That is no criminal, no prior criminal history. Uh, and then you pick the row uh, based on the numerical offense level uh, that is assessed to you uh, all through the computation of the sentencing guidelines. The sentencing guidelines are hundreds of pages long. And basically what you do is you look up in the index Okay, what crime have they been con convicted uh, of? Which have have they been convicted? And then you turn to that section, and it says like, okay, started at twelve, and then you aggravate it by X number of levels if it's a crime of violence, and you can reduce it by such and such if they cooperated. And, and basically, you just get to a number, and then you plot that number against the column. Um, you are a hundred percent correct that uh, be <laughs> because. Uh, 18 U.S.A. 2384 rarely charged, even more rare to convict. Uh, that's not in <laughs> the uh, index for the for the sentencing uh, guidelines. And so what you have to do is look for comparable offenses. Um, I I'll tell you, the first comparable offense that came to mind was treason. Right. These are in the yep. treason sections. 
That is section 2M1.1, and M are offenses involving the national defense. That seems plausible. And weapons of mass destruction. Okay, that's that's probably not. Um, But uh, 2M1.1 for treason starts off with base offense level is 43 if the conduct is tantamount to waging war against the United States. And I think that that's why you saw that kind of rhetoric in the closing argument, right? That's not a thing you have to prove, right? To prove under the statute, all you have to prove is that by force they delayed the execution of any one particular law. And, you know, here they they clearly did. Uh, That is the Electoral Count Act, 3 U.S.C. 15. The reason you want to to be able to come out swinging and go, no, 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 like literally, this is an insurrection. What they did was tantamount to waging war against the United States is that that starts you off with a base offense level of 43. And if you're asking um, how many rows are on the sentencing guideline chart, uh, you want to take a wild guess how many rows are on the sentencing guideline chart? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. 43. So, uh, <laughs> so that's you, the- <laughs> are, you are starting at the dead bottom uh which by the way for every offense category is life life imprisonment without possibility for parole now the statute imposes the maximum so that would get reduced to the statutory maximum of of 20 years uh but um yeah if you start off in sentencing with this is tantamount to waging war you start off at the very bottom that's it life imprisonment without parole reduced to 20 years by operation of the statute. What if you're not convinced, right? And, and it's possible, right? The judge might say, okay, um, you know, this was eight fat guys with code names like Dive Bomb who were hiding out in a Holiday Inn. They, they really wage war against the United States. They, you know, it was more like they were cosplaying war against the United States. And or, it's they bad were attempting, and all, but... or they were attempting by force to put down the government. Right, right. Um, then you, you would look through, uh, and try and figure out, you know, what, what lesser starting point you might wind up with. Um, and I will tell you the guidelines are not super helpful with respect to that when it, when it comes to the treason component, right? Because the, the ones that, that fall under, you know, and again, all of these start off pretty high level, <laughs> right? You're so right. 2M3.1 is transmitting or gathering national defense information to aid a foreign government. Okay, you know, classic espionage. You know, that starts at a 42 if top secret information, that's one line above. Or if it's not top secret information, that's a 37, which is, you know, it's a, a couple lines above a 37, you might get on the low end 210 months in prison. So, you know, that's uh that's that's still what 17 years. Um it, but but that's a less good fit right tampering with restricted data concerning atomic energy disclosure of information identifying a covert agent evasion of military service um Mm -mm. these aren't really comparable to to what they did and and the more that you say okay well none of the other treason-like offenses really have got at the core of what you're doing the more you know, I could see a sentencing memorandum saying, "Yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna start with the thing that this is like, and what is this what like? About, this is like waging war." Yeah. What about insurrection? Does is there a sentencing guideline for insurrection that they might use? 
nope. <laughs> that just right. isn't. Again, you know, it's it's we're sort of in. Could they in, turn to the fifteen twelve C two if as a like kind of a thing? So you you could right fifteen twelve C is is governed by section two J one point two. Um, let me go there. Yeah, and I'm wondering if there's anything in that table that might be close that they could probably add aggregating factors to. Because we haven't seen the first seditious conspiracy sentencing memo yet, have we? No, we have not. I've been I've been on the lookout for that. So the the 2J1 section, uh 2J1.2 is an obstruction of justice section, right? So at the bare minimum you know, they've obstructed justice. And and I think certainly you would argue as the prosecutor, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're using that for the obstruction related convictions. But but this seditious conspiracy goes goes well beyond just obstructing justice. That being said. Right. So obstruction of justice starts way lower on the scale. That is uh, at a at a base offense level of, of 14. Uh, but uh Instantly, you add eight levels for uh, causing or threatening to cause physical injury to a person or property damage in order to obstruct the administration of justice. Uh, and then you add three levels for substantial interference with the administration of justice. Um, but none of that really gets to the fact and, and there aren't adjustments built into the 2J1.2 for violence, right? Like or domestic you, you, terror. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So, you know, you would be looking for, you know, something that um, that would that would add on top of it that like, no, this wasn't just like obstructing justice by, you know, there being violence in the background. Right. Like this was planning to run guns in from Virginia to the District of Columbia once you've breached the Capitol. And, um, you know, I can I could certainly see an argument uh, that, you know, j just starting uh, at a 25 is going to be insufficient. A, a 25 on the table, just so that we know, is 57 to 71 months. So five to six years in prison. So mm. we're, we're really talking about the difference between, you know, starting off with five to six years or starting off with. 20 years as, as right. Statute. And, and, and many yeah. of the people who have been convicted of 15, 12 C2 have gotten six yep. years or so. And so that you you can't really apply that to the seditious conspiracy charge. Uh, it doesn't really make sense. I would be really interested because we're going to get that first Stuart Rhodes MIGS uh, sentencing uh, memorandum from the Department of Justice before we get this one. Yep. And I would and assume they would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I assume they would use the same guidelines uh, for this trial. And I'm, I'm excited to see how the Department of Justice does this. It's just so rare. Um, yeah. And, 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 and well, let me let me let me just upend one tiny thing on with respect to that, which is the sentencing guidelines require you to assess when you are petitioning for a downward departure or an upward departure, how this sentence for this offense relates to others who have been sentenced under this section. Right. And so it will absolutely, in addition to kind of serving as the model, right, whatever the judge uh, imposes against Stuart Rhodes and that band, right, will apply here. So, okay. yeah, it, 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 
otherwise you'd have to give a reason. So, you know, if Rhodes gets 20 years and God help us, he should, right, then it would be very, very difficult. You would have to, as the judge, write a specific memorandum, right, that explains why you have departed from your usual practice if you were to sentence him to something that is substantially less than than 20 years. So, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So that'll be the... That'll be the uh, they're going to set their they're going to set their kind of goals, their sentencing goals for basically anybody who gets convicted of seditious conspiracy for the attack on the Capitol. And uh, before we switch gears, we're going to take before we take a break and switch gears to something else incredible that happened today with an arrest uh, of a a counter former counterintelligence FBI guy. Um, (laughs) I wanted to uh, which is right in the cleanup, right in the uh, cleanup aisle. Um, I, I wanted to address, there have been some social media posts going around from some people who uh, hate the Department of Justice for whatever reason, um, about the seditious conspiracy charges, saying, you know, it, Michael Sherwin wanted to bring these charges way back in the day, uh, and Garland said, no, you don't have the case. I just kind of want to address Mike fucking Sherwin for a minute, if you, if if I may, because <laughs> I wrote this a year ago, uh, a year and 10 days ago, uh, in response to some people on Twitter saying, bring Michael Sherman back. Where's the seditious conspiracy charges? Garland's not doing his job. I said, all right, let me tell you about Mike fucking Sherwin. Remember the U.S. attorney in D.C., Andrew Jesse Liu, Mm -hmm. who Barr tried to remove twice for probably not being willing to go along with their bullshit, like indicting Andy McCabe or whatever, well, Barr tried to move her out of, out into Maine justice, and she declined. And then Trump offered her a job at the Treasury, and she was like, all right. So as she was packing her desk and walking over to the Treasury Department, he rescinded the offer, and she was effectively fired. Right. And Trump and Barr then installed Tim Shea. He's the guy who <laughs> let Flynn and Stone off the hook, and a bunch of other people resigned in protest. Uh, and, and by the vacancy rules, Tim Shea only had 120 days and would need the D.C. District Court's consent to stay longer, which wasn't going to happen. So Barr circumvented career prosecutors and installed Mike Sherwin. Now, Andrew, even GOP appointee and president of the D.C. Bar said Barr's packing of close associates into senior positions at DOJ undermined the independence of the mm-hmm. D.C., the U.S. Attorney's Office, and Gerson, a bar aide and GOP appointee, said the move amounted to a political coup. Sherwin backed Barr in his bid to dismiss Flynn's guilty plea. Assistant U.S. attorneys complained that they've lost credibility and couldn't secure plea deals because Trump installed his pals. Sherwin approved and communicated to prosecutors the decision to give Flynn's defense internal FBI records cited in Barr's motion to dismiss Flynn's case. He also refused to allow the DOJ to search Stuart Rhodes's house. Sherwin went on TV then, 60 Minutes, and discussed potential seditious conspiracy charges in an open and ongoing case, which violates DOJ policy. He was referred to the DOJ's Office of Professional Responsibility for that major fuck-up. And Judge Mehta called an emergency conference about, about this with the attorneys for the Oath Keepers to tell them uh, that he would not tolerate Sherwin's bullshit anymore. And Mehta said the public remarks and Sherwin's appearance on 60 Minutes could put the case in jeopardy. It violated the rights of the accused, and Sherwin's statements were seen as possibly being prejudicial to the Oath Keepers. Now, the next day, Sherwin resigned so he wouldn't be sanctioned (laughs) for his behavior. So, hell yes, it was right for Garland to balk at Sherwin's case 
given he had already jeopardized it, potentially tainted a jury, and risked violating the rights of criminal defendants. So if you ask me, the fact that Garland and the new USAO in D.C. were able to button up these charges and bring them despite the behavior of Michael Taint Sherwin is a justice miracle. And they were convicted today. So thank you, Department of Justice. I, I, I love that you have brought that full circle. I don't, I, you know, we may still have a couple of cranky holdouts like, you know, the dude who doesn't understand that Merrick Garland moderated a debate for the Federalist Society and is not a secret, you know, hidden cabal 29th level Mason at the Federalist Society. Like, I, but other than, you know, those on our side who were engaged in QAnon level lunacy, like I, I don't see how you can look at the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland and, and not think um, that this is this is what we had hoped would happen right there is there's a special prosecutor out there investigating three specific categories broad-based categories of crimes against the former president uh there are uh, upwards of a thousand folks uh who are teed up who are being prosecuted in connection with january 6th some of them for the most serious felonies that uh are on the books like seditious conspiracy. Um, and, you know, as to, to kind of bring it back full circle, I, I said that, uh, you know, we were we were going to see how this might, you know, play into uh, charges against the the former guy. Right. Well, you know, that that the the one six committee referred out not twenty three eighty four seditious conspiracy, but twenty three eighty three rebellion or insurrection. And it is whoever incites sets on foot sets on foot assists or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof or gives aid and comfort thereto shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both. Um, I, I Easier than seditious conspiracy for Donald. Uh, yeah. And without the core force element, right? Because yeah. Uh, we we don't have you know Donald Trump did not plan to run guns into the Capitol. Did he enable the folks who did? Sure, that is giving aid or comfort there too. <laughs> so uh, I I feel like this is you know I, we always deal with this every time there's an interim step. Someone says uh, rightfully so. Boy, it sure feels like Donald Trump always gets away with it. And and the reason for that is because yeah he he got away with it when he was in charge. Uh, he's not in charge anymore. His lackeys are gone. And, um, you know, there there is, I think, every reason to be optimistic. Again, not naively optimistic. If Republicans retake the White House, you know, then we're in for decades of darkness here. But, uh, I, you know, I, I'm I remain cautiously optimistic. Um, some may say that that's a personality flaw. But uh, no, but, I, but I there we go. I just given just given the evidence, I think Donald Trump will be indicted. And if he's not, then that is a major, major mistake from the Justice Department. Yeah. Uh, but absolutely. the cool thing is, with the special counsel, we get the declinations if he does decline to prosecute. If Jack Smith declines to prosecute anything that was being investigated, he has to explain it to us why. And so we saw that in the Mueller report and uh, we will see it again. Um, if there are declination decisions, but I'm I'm very optimistic as well. And and I mean, look, if it doesn't happen, I will be excruciatingly pissed off. Don't get yeah, me wrong. We'll do, I will do a sequel <laughs> podcast 
called get the fuck back onto aisle 45 and do your goddamn yeah. jobs. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, an interesting arrest that happened uh, that was reported today. Uh, about somebody inside the FBI, uh, which kind of disproves the whole FBI is the deep state uh, conspiracy theory. So we'll be right back with that. Stay with us. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, let me just read you this lead, Andrew, from the Washington Post. This is... Uh, <laughs> Shayna Jacobs, Spencer Hsu, and Devlin Barrett. I'm not a really big Devlin Barrett fan, but I like the others. The former head of the FBI's counterintelligence division of the New York field office has been indicted on two federal jurisdictions, in two federal jurisdictions, on charges related to improper foreign ties, including for allegedly violating U.S. sanctions on Russians by trying to get billionaire Oleg Deripaska removed from the sanctions list. That's according to the Justice Department. Charles McGonigal, 54, who's been retired since 2018, has been indicted in federal court in Manhattan on money laundering, violating sanctions and other charges connected to his alleged ties to Deripaska. And we know who Deripaska is, a Russian ally of, of Putin. Uh, McGonigal had been tasked in his role at the FBI, by the way, with investigating Oleg Deripaska, who, whose own indictment for sanctions violations was unsealed this past September. Yeah. And so let's talk about that a little bit you know we we all know who uh aluminum oligarch oleg deripaska is um that this was really significant uh when that indictment against uh deripaska was unsealed in september of 2022 um and i'm, I'm gonna read this is starting at paragraph 19 um which is uh, on page uh, 13 which says of the indictment? Uh, from, of, yeah, of the, the Deripaska indictment. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from at least in or about 2019 through in or about 2022, Deripaska and the defendants, we could talk about the others who were indicted with it. That's, that's kind of collateral at this point. Um, to provide funds, goods, and services to and for the benefit of Deripaska, companies owned and controlled by Deripaska, and to receive funds, goods, and services from Deripaska. Deripaska continued to receive funds, goods, and services from these individuals uh, even after being designated as an SDN, subject of sanctions, in or about April of 2018 and in violation of the Ukraine-related executive orders and Ukraine-related sanctions regulations until at least 2022. In particular, Deripaska used the underlings, used their assistance to engage in several endeavors in the United States in violation of those executive orders and sanctions to wit a December 2019 they his underlings facilitated the sale of a music studio in Burbank California for the benefit of Deripaska who owned and controlled the music studio through a series of corporate entities the proceeds of the sale a little over 3 million bucks from an account at Wells Fargo held in the name of Ocean Studios LLC to a bank account in Russia belonging to a Deripaska-controlled entity. In May 2018, Deripaska's associates uh, <laughs> instructed and arranged to, uh, to purchase and provide flower and gift deliveries on behalf mm. of Deripaska to his social contacts in the United States and Canada, included two Easter gift deliveries to a U.S. television host, two flower deliveries to a then former Canadian parliament member and two flower deliveries in 2022. Katerina Olegovna Voronina, 
the defendant, while she was in the United States to give birth, give birth to Deripaska's child. The flower and gift deliveries were often accompanied by notes that identified Deripaska as the gifter, such as wishing you and your family a beautiful Easter holiday. Oleg D. I, I, I just I just had to read that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> and yeah, in 2020, uh, his underlings uh, in, in instructed uh, others to purchase items in the U.S. for Deripaska's personal use, including iPhones and clothing. Uh, there was a, a phone call in which uh, Deripaska sent a, uh, a, a text message with a photograph uh, for American Eagle stuff that was like, American Eagle wants a lot of units. I, OV wants these T-shirts, 10 count size, extra large. Could you find them and urgently send them? Um, so, you know, ranging and then we, we have more in 2020 as the pandemic began and people were worried about the state of hospital care. Deripaska and Voronina agreed that their child should be born in the United States. And so uh, he funneled three hundred thousand uh, dollars into the United States uh, to ensure that his child would be born here in the U.S. Um, you know, there were one hundred and seventy thousand uh, in payments to uh, other individuals at a financial institution for rent on a Beverly Hills penthouse. And, uh, you know, this this just keeps on going and going. And remember, you know, he was sanctioned uh, in connection with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions prevent moving funds in or out of the United States, which, uh, you know, he did with impunity. Um that's super duper bad. <laughs> and so knowing that there is someone at the FBI with close ties to a, a high confidant of Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, somebody who has utter contempt uh, for U.S. laws and sanctions. Um, I imagine you have some thoughts about that, Alice. <laughs> uh, yeah, a few. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I mean, we we have been talking about what was going on at the New York field office for a long time with regard yeah. to Rudy Giuliani and Kallstrom and perhaps the leak of the Anthony Weiner laptop with the duplicate Hillary emails on it and uh, threats to, to put that out that Rudy Giuliani was bragging about on Fox News ahead of the election, talking about his October surprise with information from current and former people at the New York field office. I have to wonder if uh, McGonagall wasn't caught up in that. But now McGonagall's been arrested. Um, and I'll just hear, I'll just read here from a wiser and Rauschbaum at the Times. A former high-level FBI official has been indicted in New York and D.C. on charges of taking money from a former Foreign Intelligence Service agent and conspiring to violate sanctions on Russia by taking secret payments from Deripaska. That former official, Charles McGonagall, who had been the special agent in charge of the FBI's counterintelligence division in New York, had supervised and participated in the investigations of Russian oligarchs, including Deripaska. Federal prosecutors say he broke the law by agreeing to help Deripaska, who himself was indicted, as we, you just went over there. The charges are an extremely serious and rare set of charges uh, uh, because they're accusing an FBI official and they demonstrate the reach of Russia's oligarchs that can extend into the heart of uh, our American institutions. So it's money laundering, 1001, and then two violations of sanctions, two money laundering counts and then a 1001 count. Um, and so McGonagall, while working for the Bureau, concealed from the FBI his relationship with a former Albanian intelligence officer 
from whom he received $225,000 in cash. That person became an FBI source in a criminal investigation involving foreign political lobbying that McGonagall supervised. Uh, Mike Driscoll, who's the assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York office, said the Bureau was committed to enforcement of economic sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. So this is really, really bad. Um, I mean, it's good that they got him. And it's, yeah. it's uh, but this seems like a a big, just sweeping cleanup of some of the corruption that's gone deep into the FBI. Agent one named in the indictment, <laughs> Andrew, is, uh, I think, uh, became a New York Police Department intelligence specialist. I mean, oh, it's- good. Do we know? Do we know or do we have strong suspicions who Agent one is? I don't yet. Okay. Have we checked Marcy Wheeler? She probably knows. <laughs> I, I yeah, you know, sort of breaking. But uh, here's here's how that sort of dramatis personae kind of shakes out. Remember that Deripaska has various agents and underlings in the United States, including the woman who gave birth to his child. Those agents and underlings introduced. Uh, an employee and agent that is referred to just as Agent One to directly to McGonagall. Now, here's the Marcy Wheeler sleuthing. This is from paragraph 12 of the McGonagall indictment. So the, the, the one that came down today. Agent One was formerly a diplomat with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for the Soviet Union and Russian Federation and rumored in public media reports to be a Russian intelligence officer typically means hmm. is a Russian intelligence agent, right? At all relevant times, Agent One worked for and reported to Deripaska and served as an officer of a corporation that in 2018 was primarily owned by Deripaska and itself subject to sanctions, right? So that that was the, the contact, was this Agent One. Uh, the underlings asked McGonagall to help Agent One obtain an internship with the New York City Police Department for Agent One's daughter in the fields of counterterrorism, intelligence gathering, and international liaisoning. McGonagall agreed to help, and uh, he requested assistance from a contact in the NYPD, telling the contact, I have an interest in her father for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yes, you do. Um, so uh, then... Uh, McGonagall introduced Agent One to a New York law firm uh, that Agent One retained to work lobbying to overturn the sanctions that they were violating. Right. A uh, process often referred to as uh, delisting. And so while they're while they're doing that, um, McGonagall uh, traveled to meet Deripaska and others at, at Deripaska's house in London and his other house in Vienna. And so uh, they refer to him, to Deripaska, as the individual, our friend from Vienna and the Vienna client, you know, like you do when you have a legitimate client, right? Yeah, uh, totally. And and so uh, the uh, Deripaska pays the law firm $175,000 a month, hmm. uh, which, you know, that's... That's that's good work if you can get it. That's that's uh, above Norm Pattis levels uh, with twenty five thousand dollars, quote, currently earmarked for certain other professionals. And then the law firm retained McGonagall as a consultant and investigator and paid him that twenty five thousand dollars a month. So, you know, not just uh, doing favors, but actually receiving kickbacks 
uh, laundered through the law firm on behalf of the Vienna client. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, you have some of the evidence that is in here is evidence from others who got caught up in the transaction chain. So, you know, there's there's payments out uh, to what is referred to as a New Jersey corporation. And the indictment just says uh, this paragraph 20. The New Jersey corporation was owned by a friend of McGonagall. <laughs> referred to as the capital oh. friend. Yeah, the friend. The friend had arranged for McGonagall to participate in the business of the New Jersey Corporation while McGonagall was still serving the FBI. The friend provided McGonagall with a corporate email account and a cell phone under a false name, which McGonagall at times used, in order to conceal McGonagall's work for the New, New Jersey Corporation while still employed by the FBI. With respect to the contract, however, McGonagall uh, told one of Deripaska's underlings, that he had not informed the friend that he was using the New Jersey Corporation to receive payment on that contract, right? the one that I described that was laundered through the law firm. Uh, Deripaska's underling subsequently forged the friend's signature on the contract without the friend's permission. When the friend questioned McGonagall about why the Russian bank was making payments to the New Jersey Corporation, again, that, that he owned, McGonagall told the friend, in substance and in part, that it was payment for, quote, legitimate work McGonagall was performing for, quote, <laughs> a rich Russian guy, end of quote. Uh, so, you nice. know, that what, he was like, what's a little light criming among us white-collar criminals here, right? Uh, and why why are we all of a sudden getting these pay? Oh, I got a rich Russian guy, but trust me, it's totally legitimate. Not quite essential consulting LLC, but uh, you yeah. know, wow. Um, now there again, were a lot of people that were yeah. trying to help Oleg Deripaska get his sanctions lifted. Yeah, uh, I remember some staffers of Mitch McConnell uh, trying to lobby to get his sanctions lifted so that Oleg Deripaska could help build an aluminum plant in Kentucky. That never happened. Uh, also, Mnuchin, Steve, right? He yeah. made a deal that Oleg Deripaska could unload some of his shares in Rusal and have his sanctions lift a little bit. And so what did, what, did, what, what did Oleg do? He sold those shares to the Kremlin and his family and then <laughs> called that unloading his shares in Rusal. Uh, and, and some of the sanctions were lifted there. Uh, to hope, I think, in hopes that the the aluminum plant could go forward in Kentucky, but you know, because that's Mitch McConnell, and uh, that's probably all super legal. Uh, but it, there's been a lot of people, a lot of people, trying to get these sanctions lifted, and I'm really glad that this Department of Justice is going hard after this. Yeah, me too. Uh, it is. Uh, it's disheartening to read what was happening, uh, but uh, you know, just this. This is another item for the files when you know you've got i had some you know glenn greenwald stooge you know spam my uh facebook wall for opening arguments the other day and you know provide links to greenwald and matt taibbi and like that deranged crowd that that has said well there's a there's absolutely no evidence of collusion between the trump campaign and russia and democrats were just crazy to go down that line i the, the the Russians managed to elect a pro-Russian stooge who stood athwart international democracy as president of the United States. And he remains the overwhelming favorite of one of our two major political parties in this country. Um, and, and we should never forget that <laughs> and you're like and, and this is real bad <laughs> like i cannot believe that we have a you know a fifth column within 
our own side who, for whatever reasons, you know, tend to be pro-Russian and tend to downplay, uh, you know, what what actually happened during the Trump administration. But uh, but but here's an example of what actually happened. Yeah. So, and this is a lot yeah. of cleanup. I mean, we've got the September indictment of Deripaska. Now we've got some uh, <laughs> not just Americans, but counterintelligence FBI leaders of the New York field office FBI yep. people. Uh, being indicted for this. Uh, there might be more indictments yet to come. We've just had, uh, we've just named the Wagner Group uh, a transnational crime syndicate. Uh, and so, I mean, I, there's a lot of Russia cleanup that's sort of going on under the radar, not really being talked about. Uh, and I'm really hoping that the arrest of this FBI agent, former counterintelligence FBI agent guy, sort of brings that to light uh, because you and I will talk about it all yeah. day. I'll talk about it on the beans. We'll talk about it here. We've been talking about it. I I brought up McGonagall signing business paperwork with Deripaska back in 2021 when uh, forensic news reported it. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's nice to see some of this stuff being cleaned up. And I know what a lot of people are thinking, well, why don't we just indict Donald for the Mueller obstruction charges? Um, but, you know, I do have to repeat that Bill Barr put out an OLC memo with his paydag and Rosenstein that said that there were no reason there was no reason to charge. He tried to keep that from the public. Uh, but um, we got to see that. And that particular OLC memo is what makes it nearly impossible for Merrick Garland to charge those obstruction charges. Uh, otherwise, he would have to give himself give the DOJ a big black eye. And uh, I don't think he's uh, want to do that. So here we are. Uh, this is yeah. how we clean this up. I, I agreed. I agreed with everything sort of up until that that point. You know, my feelings about OLC memoranda. Uh, but I, 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 I take your I take it's your not point. the one that says you can't, can't charge a sitting no, president. No, no I know. It's right. Because he's no memo. longer a sitting president. <laughs> no, no, I'm not even talking about that one. I'm talking about the Bill Barr 2019 memo that says why yeah. we aren't bringing, why Donald Trump didn't commit obstruction of justice. And he tried, they tried to hide that with deliberative process privilege and lost. And this DOJ did not appeal that loss. And so the memo mostly came out. And that yeah. charging decision or not declination decision is really tough to overturn, uh, especially in the face of 20 other really easy to do crimes. <laughs> So. I, it, I don't. So, a apologies for being unclear uh, with respect to, you know, what you're sort of describing as having. Uh, you're you're not you're not quite calling it precedential effect, but you know, saying it's sort of binding on future decisions. In my view, I think in a vacuum, I certainly would not think that that would be binding against, uh, you know, sort of the underlying premise of prosecutorial discretion. Right. So uh, I I I certainly don't think that uh, that that it would be an obstacle. But I, I definitely no, it's not binding. Yeah, it's not yeah, binding. I, Trump would yeah. just say, look, here's a memo from the Department of Justice itself telling me that I didn't obstruct justice. Uh, yeah. And it would make <laughs> from the your job, DOJ. Yeah, I would. It I, would make the, <laughs> it would make the job very difficult is what I'm saying. I, I, I don't disagree with that. And, but but I think the, the, the two larger takeaways that I, I just want to underscore are, number one, there's there's lots more lower hanging fruit 
upon which to convict a former president. And when you were talking about doing an, an, a literally unprecedented thing, right, that is putting a former president on criminal trial for charges that relate to activities that were conducted either during or in the documents case during and after his presidency, right? That's that's thing that's never been done in our country's history before. And the, the, the less complicated you make that the less, you know, well, well, you know, but actually he's uh, that are available there. I, I, I think, that is a smart prosecutorial decision, right? That that sort of relates back to our discussion of, uh, you know, selectively what the one six committee referred out. Right. They were they, they were very clear, you know, not to refer out twenty three eighty four because right. the evidence of coordinating force uh, is, is just is just not there. Now, you know, do you and I know that, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the Oath Keepers were the muscle for the Trump? Of course we do. Right. And do we know we, we we know where that evidence probably lies? That evidence lies with Roger Stone. Right. Who travels around with members of the Oath Keepers as his personal security force. But, right. you know, as a prosecutor, you recognize you, you're not going to flip Roger Stone. I, no. you know, Roger Stone's already done time. You know, yeah. he's got Nixon tattooed on his ass like <laughs> lower, lower back. Excuse me. Right. Like, you know, yeah. Tramp stamp. But but uh, it it. it that guy's that guy's never going to give you the goods, no. and so you know you have to look at it and go, okay, um, can't make that case. Let's let's make the the case as we can make. And and the nice thing is, you know, as we sort of round that off, due to the work that has been done, the hard boots on the ground document reading work that's been done, these are now pretty straightforward cases. Pretty to easy make. charges. Yeah. yeah. And and don't so. don't get me wrong, Andrew. If it were me, I would prosecute. OLC I, memos I do, be I damned. <laughs> I, I'm just giving reasons why somebody like Merrick Garland would probably not go that route. Uh, agree or not, that's what is likely happening. Uh but you know, I I I I, I feel a little bit differently about it. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I know I you a, do. I was I I'm was giving voice to our you know lawyers about the <laughs> about the Mueller investigation, as you may or may not know. <laughs> you uh, had, I thought you that, had some connection to that, if I recall correctly. I, th I thought Volume Two was just a, a a work of art and and should have been prosecuted. I did an um, episode called "The Nine Crimes That." Uh, Donald Trump has clearly committed as laid mm -hmm. out by volume two of the Mueller report. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, we but are now, preaching to each it, other on that. <laughs> but now it looks like um, something, you know, talking about prosecutorial discretion and going after the easy crimes. Well, first of all, the IRS should be looking into him. And, and but that's, you know, whatever. Uh, we're, we're kind of seeing a little bit of a turn, not necessarily a turn, but uh, an emphasis on the financial fraud of Donald Trump following the election and leading up to the January 6th insurrection. Uh, specifically, uh, there was a huge, as you know, a swath of subpoenas that went out with the ask for two dozen types of information. And one of the big ones that they were looking for was information on all of his PACs, Save America PAC, MAGA, Make America Great Again PAC. There's four PACs and something called the election fraud defense, which never existed, but he raised $250 million on and sent out sometimes 25 emails a day, starting on November 4th, the day after the election, before Biden was actually declared. That, to me, is pretty open and shut. Fraud, wire fraud, computer fraud, defrauding donors, conspiracy to defraud the United States. 
And I, I feel like that looks kind of, you know, I was talking with uh, McCabe about this on, on the latest episode of Jack. It looks like he's kind of maybe pivoting into this really simple big fraud thing. So Lofgren brought it up, brought it up in the January 6th committee hearings, the election defense fund. Uh, and then also how that ties into the, the PACs, because he was also looking for information, Andrew, on where the money was spent, including on lawyers. Yeah. Uh, and I, we, as we know, Passantino is one of them, and there's probably a ton more. Uh, the Oath Keepers were, were forced to say how much money they were getting from the Save America PAC for their defense. It's a lot. And so that is now really looks like a big focus uh, in 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 the special counsel investigation, as it should be, because that is a pretty open and shut case. They're looking at uh, Sidney Powell did it, too. Yeah, that, that's right. And that, you know, we don't have time to talk about how that relates to the bigger picture. But I'm thinking about, for example, the sanctions order that Judge Middlebrooks issued uh, in the Southern District of Florida against Alina Haba and her, you know, monkey partner. Uh, in connection with that insane lawsuit that was brought against Hillary Clinton and the Freemasons and the Illuminati and whatever for conspiring with Ukraine to I, like it would it, it you know you know the one that I'm talking about the sanctions order that begins this case should never have been brought. Um, one of the things that's super interesting in that case you and I have talked about offline is that there's a there's a five six page section in the middle that talks about that toxic relationship uh the, the uh, as 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 our uh, as our friend Liz Dye put it the you know virtuous cycle minus the virtue uh of funneling campaign dollars uh to lawyers who then bring meritless lawsuits for political purposes which then the former president uses to fundraise to then funnel more money back into the packs and then, you know, and sort of keep it going. And nobody cares that the stuff they're filing, like, like Alina Haba is fucking stupid, but she's not that fucking stupid, right? Like nobody is fucking stupid enough to have filed the things that, that, that they filed. Uh, and it will continue to happen until something happens to, uh, you know, sort of go after this at the source. So I, yeah, it, I, and that's I, I throw that out there as kind of a broad based. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And that's one of the things the subpoena was looking at. Did you spend money? Did they spend money? Uh, did they say that it was an election defense fund and then spend money on this frivolous Russia collusion lawsuit? Did, did any of that money go to that? Did any of the money go to Alina Haba and her firm? Uh, where did the money come from that paid for this lawsuit? It, it had to come from somewhere. Were they ill-gotten gains defrauding donors? That is how that sanctions order connects to the Jack Smith investigation. And uh, we talk all about that because, you know, Andy McCabe was one of the defendants in that lawsuit. Uh, so we talk about that on the latest Jack. You should check it out. But, yeah, it's it's very unsurprising and interesting how all of these things are connected, Andrew. I think that's an excellent way to kind of bring everything to a close. So we will continue to be following those and other stories and the larger narrative and doing everything we can to bring you this administration's efforts to, you know, clean up on aisle 45. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew and Torres. We know you. We know Andrew Torres. We'll see you next <laughs> week on Clean Up. <laughs> Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Bye. 
Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>